0: Hi, I'm Bob Eckland. Welcome to my podcast, Disciple: Word, Spirit, Justice, Witness. I've been moved lately to notice how the Spirit seems to be compelling me into different uh, actions that appear to be really timely actions that um, you know that are in alignment with our calling here in the Skagit Valley and globally. And um, really, this is a reflection on a very simple, short word in Greek, day, which is translated as must or have to. Sometimes our translations in the Bible translate it should, but I I don't think that's the right word. I think it's, this is a word that talks about being compelled. And we see uh, it used many times in the New Testament. And one of the most um, The places where I've noticed it and been really impacted at the most is in John chapter four, where um, Jesus is described beginning in verse one, it says, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Okay, there's the word day. He had to pass through Samaria. And um, so here's Jesus. He 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 learns that the Pharisees had heard that he was uh, making and baptizing more disciples than John. So now instead of just one person baptizing, you have 12 times as many baptizing. So there's a huge uh, mobilization going on with Jesus, even though he himself isn't doing the baptizing. So there's... Um, the Pharisees are likely feeling threatened and um, Jesus knew that um, that threat would lead to increasing host- hostility against him and even plans to kill him, which were eventually successful and uh, so anyway he he decided to go to Galilee and this is often a place that he would withdraw to but this uh, the language of withdrawing is not used here. So um, so anyway um, he had to pass through Samaria well, in reality, did he have to? You know Bible scholars have noted that religious Jews would um, who were on their way to Galilee would often bypass Samaria because that was considered a place where they would be made unclean, you know, being uh, in interacting with Samaritans. Of course that's not Jesus' style, but um, that is the fastest way to get to Galilee is through Samaria. But the way people would do it, religious Jews would do it, would be to go up the Jordan Valley, so maybe descend down to um, Jericho and then up the Jordan Valley. Or I'm sure there's other other routes. But anyway, um, so Jesus didn't have to, but he. We're going to see in a few minutes that that he had to in order to encounter the Samaritan woman at the well in in the right at the moment of when she was there drawing water. Okay, but let's back up a little bit so. Um, So Jesus knows that there's some pressure that is growing against his mission. And another place where this term day is used in the Gospels is related to, you know, Jesus being aware that his ministry is going to lead to persecution, crucifixion, and then resurrection. So here's an example, Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, there it is, day, go to Jerusalem, and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day okay so there's many times where the term day is used in these prophecies where jesus knows his destiny and there's also a place where in luke's gospel luke um 13:33 where we see that that jesus aware of the of his destiny knew that um he had to you know, be really careful that he was not, um, going to get caught and arrested or, um, detained outside of Jerusalem, which, um, according to prophecy, um, that's where he was going to, his life would end. So Luke thirteen thirty three. there, nevertheless, I must journey. There it is day on today and tomorrow. I must. And the next day for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. And, um, so anyway, other examples of of you know day used um, regarding prophecy would be um, say Luke twenty one nine. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place, but the end does not follow immediately. So there's things that um, we need to be aware of that that must take place that are part of just the the the, the history and the, the winding up of of human history and you know and the breaking in of god's history you know the the eschaton when when jesus is to return and um there's many other places that are that are like that um you know where we have you know jesus describing you know um how things need to happen in a particular way like matthew 26:54 um you know jesus says how then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen in this way. So Jesus was very aware of his locatedness in uh, in the history of salvation and how he was in direct directly uh, fulfilling scripture. And are we aware of ourselves as being in alignment with, uh, you know, with the history of God's movement in the world and uh, the destination that we're going in? You know, um, we see that um, for instance, Mark 13:14, Jesus says, "But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains." And um, and so r- right away, Jesus is making sure that uh, his disciples know that they're not to wage war against, um, you know, against the enemy there. Like there should be no culture wars. That that believers are involved in, but rather um, fleeing, in this case, to the mountains rather than taking up arms in any way and um, you know recognizing that, look, we're not about certain kinds of confrontations. We want to uh, reserve our lives for the, the highest priority actions, okay? So for instance, for Jesus, the highest priority pr- actions um, were proclaiming the gospel that he was commissioned to proclaim. So, for instance, um, Luke chapter 4, verse 43. But he said to them, I must preach the gospel of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So there it is. I must preach. Um, The term day is used. Um, Jesus was sent for a purpose and he knew what that was. And so he was compelled to not to stay in one place, maybe where his audience wanted him to stay in Capernaum or whatever, but to move from place to place. You know, the people of Nazareth wanted him to do the works that he'd done in Capernaum. But Jesus had a mission to go from place to place. Um, so anyway, let's go on and look more closely at um, John chapter 4. So Jesus um, had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And therefore, or then, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Okay, so, and, um, so here we are, Jesus, right at the moment um, when this woman, right prior to this woman uh, from Samaria who was coming to draw water, Jesus arrives at the well and he's sitting there about the sixth hour. Of course, it's not even exact because I'm sure he didn't have a watch, but it was about the sixth hour. And um, then there came this woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus in- initiates a relationship with her, and um, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food, so there the timing is just right too. Jesus is alone. He doesn't have another 12 men with him, which would have been very intimidating uh, for the woman, and maybe Jesus would have, uh, he wouldn't have likely been blocked, but we see later that the disciples were shocked that he had been talking with a woman. So, maybe they would have been looking um, critically at, at the woman and at Jesus. If and he wouldn't have felt the same freedom, or she wouldn't have felt the same freedom to engage. Um, anyway, therefore, the woman Samaritan woman said to him, "How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman?" So she notices um, that his having to go through Samaria was, um, you know, was like. Uh, putting him and her in an awkward bind because uh, Jews and Samaritans aren't supposed to engage with each other. So um, she points that out. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It says in um, John 4, verse 9, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And um, so anyway, here's Jesus going deeper and offering first he, he he asks for hospitality now he becomes the host and gives hospitality and this go, leads to this conversation where you know where Jesus uh, you know Jesus there's a back and forth between them and um, you know he, he he explains to her that everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again but whoever drinks of the water that I will give that person shall never thirst. But the water that I will give that person will become in her or him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And then the woman says, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty nor come all this way. And that's when Jesus uh, says, Go call your husband and come here. And then she, um, she says that she has no husband, right? And then Jesus prophesies, You have correctly said I have no husband. For um, you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband you have said truly see that here's another example of why it, maybe it would have been awkward if the disciples had all been there Jesus is is really uh, sharing uh, knowledge that he has about her intimate life and then the woman says I, I perceive that you're a prophet and and after that Jesus um, reveals himself as the messiah to her and um and then here we have another term uh, day which appears you know Jesus uh You know, the woman is inviting, uh, is invited by Jesus to believe him that an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you'll worship the Father. Um, Jesus says, you know, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such the, the Father, such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And then here it is. God is spirit. And those who worship him must, day, worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's when the woman says, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll declare all things to me. And then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Um, He reveals himself as God. You know, I am the Greek term that is the equivalent of the revelation of a divine name that we see in um, when God met Moses in the desert in Exodus chapter 3. And then at that point, the disciples came and they're amazed that he was speaking with a woman. See, there you go. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So then the woman, she leaves her water pot, goes into the city and says to the man, come and see the man who told me all things, the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? And so then they went out to him from um, the city and they were coming to him. And at this point, The disciples are like uh, urging Jesus, you know, Rabbi, eat. And then, interestingly, he says, um, um, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And then the disciples uh, are wondering, well, who brought him food? You know, did anyone bring him food? And then Jesus says to them, "Um, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and accomplish his work. So see, this is Jesus explaining that he has been sent. And, um, in fact, that encounter was an example. So, having to go was an, is another way of saying he was sent. Um, and that is the food that Jesus is eating that is satisfying him and satisfying him. So, then Jesus goes on to say, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Okay, so I assume that Jesus was pointing out that the harvest was four months away, you know, of, uh, of wheat. Behold, he says, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Okay, so Jesus is inviting them into a prophetic seeing posture, isn't he? Because the harvest was not ready of wheat, but Jesus is inviting them to, to look at another harvest that's, that's the fields, other fields that are ripe, white for harvest. And he says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the one who sows and the one who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. And then um, right after that, we have um, this description of how uh, from the city, that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word. Of the woman who testified he told me all the things that i've done and many more believe because of his word um his word himself because he stayed with them he was invited to stay in their community and then they say it's no longer because of what you say that we believe they say that to the woman for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world so then it says after the two days he went forth from there into galilee so there you go. See, Jesus um, had to go through Samaria, but but apparently not. Um, it wasn't so urgent because he stayed two days in Samaria. So he had to go because of this divine appointment that he had, and we don't know that he knew that he was going to have that divine appointment, do we? And I believe that this is having to do something. This experience of having to do something is is something that maybe we should learn to identify in ourselves as a compulsion that is spirit-inspired. And I want to share a few stories before we look at a few more scriptures. So, um, last week I went to the jail, last Friday, to visit a man who um, I'd been trying to visit for a while. And um, anyway, I got there, I called beforehand and they said, well, the visitor booths are all full of uh, with attorney visits but if you can get here before 1130, I think I can get you in. So I drove down there. It's like 20 minutes from my house. Went through into the uh, to meet up with the you know, the jail staff and asked them if there was a room available. And, the, and my friend um, Ron there at the jail said, um, yeah, they're all filled right now, but just hang in there and wait. And so I was just waiting around and I was actually just uh, sitting on a bench reading a psalm and then uh, out walks past me a man with a a mask on. He was an inmate that had just been released. And, you know, the the main doors of the jail opened and he came out. And as he walked past me, I looked at him and I thought, wow, I know that guy. How do I know him? Um, You know, I couldn't see his face because of the mask, but his hair and just his demeanor, I recognized him. And uh, anyway, I waited there another 10 or 15 minutes. That man, he left, he went out the doors into the parking lot. And I didn't know how he was gonna go wherever he was gonna go, um, but anyway, I I just went and looked into in the visitor booths, and I found that there was a you know a visitor booth open. So I went back to to the sergeant, and, or not the sergeant, but Ron, the guy who's the staffing person there. He said, "No, no, there's there's no, nothing available." And I waited around another five minutes. Then he said, "Well, now there's a room available," but They're saying that there's not enough time before lunch, so sorry, Um, you know, you're not going to be able to visit anyone. So I was disappointed. I thought, you know, why did I feel like I was supposed to come down here and visit this guy and just, I struck out. So I just was frustrated and I I left. And as soon as I walked out, um, I called the head of the public defender's office to uh, advocate for a particular person who um, was kicked out of drug court. And who he was representing. And I hadn't been able to get a hold of this guy, but, but he answered. So I was able to have this, uh, start this conversation with this public defender. And, um, I was already in my car, um, and driving out of the parking lot when I was answering, but then I realized I needed to concentrate. So I pull over at the bus stop right outside of the jail. And I, you know, just put my car in park and, I began to talk to this public defender and right at that moment, um, the, the man that I'd seen walk past me, who'd been released, um, comes up and now he didn't have his mask and he knocked on my window. And, uh, and I motioned to him that I was on the phone and you know, put my finger up and said, I'll be basically through sign language said, I'll be ready in a, in a minute or so. And he nodded and I saw the guy's face and I thought, I recognize him, but how do I know him? So as soon as I got off the phone, I let him in the car, and uh, he said, "Oh, um, I'm, can I get a ride down to the West Side Bridge?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, no problem." And then he looked at me and he said, "Do you know me? Because um, when you when I walked past you in the jail, you looked at me like you knew me." And I said, "Well, I think I do know you, but I do you know me?" He says, "No, I, I don't know you at all." And I said, "Okay, well, I know that I recognize you, but I." don't know how I recognize you. And then suddenly, it just dawned on me. Um, Like a week before, I had been in downtown, um, driving down into the downtown part of Mount Vernon, got off the freeway, and I noticed right on the on-ramp from uh, this exit called College Way, or this uh, main road drag called College Way, right there where you enter into I-5 going north, um, right on the corner. There was a bunch of uh, grocery carts that were full of, uh, of people's things. Like, I just saw that there was uh, there were some homeless folks there. But what drew my attention was all the police officers that were swarming around um, people right there in the corner. And then I saw an aid car parked behind them. And I thought, oh no, some more fent- fentanyl deaths. And so I thought, I, I have to stop. So here's an example of I had to you know, um, day, this term, um, you know, I must, I must stop. I didn't really know why I must, but I pulled around the back of, by the aid car and I jumped out of my car and I ran down towards the police officers. And, um, you know, and so they wouldn't be disturbed by my running down there. I identified myself as, you know, Bob, a pastor with Tianueva and um, who do, does, I do street outreach on the to people who are addicts. And I, I asked the officers like, has there been a, an overdose death? And they said, no, um, but there's a bad batch and and we're seeing lots of overdoses. And these folks, were able, we were able to bring them back with Narcan. Uh, but So they're alive, but they're in bad shape. And so I, I came up and I saw a woman who was laying there who looked, I mean, she was completely unconscious and native woman from one of the reservations, one of the tribes around here. And then another guy who they'd already put on a gurney. And, um, and so anyway, I, I asked this guy who was sitting beside me in the car, did you by any chance get, um, have an overdose? And were you picked up a week ago and taken to the hospital, um, by the, by the Mount Vernon Police Department? He says, yes. I, in fact, that's exactly what happened. i you know i I overdosed and I went to the hospital, and then they found there was a warrant, and then i got ended up in the jail and uh, but I now I don't know where my wife is and i said um, i said that's that's really crazy because um that's how I know you is I came running up and you and your wife were both laying there unconscious, and I saw you you were in the gurney, and uh, you were in the you were being wheeled up to the by the police um, officers and I was, I actually walked alongside you and I was praying for you. I was praying in the spirit and I was praying that God would protect your life. And he said, you're kidding. That is crazy. You were praying for me right then. Oh, wow. You know, thank you. That is amazing. He was just so touched, you know, um, and you know, he had really long hair and, um, kind of graying black hair and, um you know, his face, I I just remembered it so well, him laying there, um, you know, just breathing, barely breathing. And, you know, that's, that was just a divine appointment. And anyway, he said, you know, when I was being, um, right at that moment, he said, when you were walking with me, um, or when I was being brought up in the, you know, to the, to take, be taken to the hospital, I had a vision. Um, I had a vision. And uh, the vision was that there were these four eagles that were hovering way above me in the sky. And I said, really? So that's crazy. Cause I mean, seriously, I was walking right alongside you and praying. And he goes, that is amazing. Cause they were golden eagles. And, um, I didn't really know the meaning of that for the Swinomish reservation. Um, this guy was a Swinomish native guy, but I, I learned that it definitely involves like spiritual activity and help that is being sent. And, um, So anyway, the man said, you know, he thanked me and thanked me, and then I drove him down towards um, the West Side Bridge. And I was worried about leaving him there because um, right across the street, there's a trap house where a lot of people buy fentanyl. So I said, so you're not, are you sure you want to go there? I mean, I I could drive you out to the reservation. And he was like, no, I I need to go there. Um, And I said, well, so, you know, there's a trap house on the other side of the river and that's not why you're going, I hope. And he goes, no, no, um, I need to find someone who knows where my wife is. And, um, because, uh, if I go all the way out to the reservation, then, um, because I'd offered to drive him out there cause I was heading in that direction. But if I go all the way out there, he said, then, um, I find out that she's back on the street somewhere in Mount Vernon, and then I'm going to have to find a ride all the way back into town. So, um, you know, no, no, thanks. Um, just let me off, you know, at the West Side Bridge. So, I said, "Okay, well, can I can I just pray for you right now? Just now that we're now that we're together before you leave." And he goes, "Please, you know, I would love that." And so I I just prayed a prayer over him and over his wife and prayer blessing, and that was to me a really just a beautiful, amazing encounter that I think is an example perhaps of me myself experiencing that, um, you know, being compelled. So then, um, a couple of days later, I had another similar experience and, you know, I'm only reflecting upon this now at, at the moment, um, when it was happening, I just knew I felt compelled. But, um, what happened is I was on my way back from just to going to the rock climbing gym where I try to work out every day and I was in my car and I was driving through the downtown part of Mount Vernon, the business center where all the addicts a lot of addicts hang out that we minister to and I thought you know I have to go and just check and see how people are doing so I went in front of um, a place called um, Dollar Tree and I saw a bunch of people you know with their with their push carts full of goods and people on bicycles and you know a lot of the people are riding around these little bikes and but anyway, I, I came up and I let, parked my car a long ways away and just walked up. And um, and I recognized a guy who I see there on a regular basis, and but I hadn't seen for a while. And I said, oh, what's, what's up? You know, hi. Um, and I named him, you know, called him by his name, which I'm not going to mention on this podcast. But he said, oh, wow, great to see you, Pastor Bob. And I said, so where have you been? I hadn't seen you for a while. It says I just got out of jail um, up in Watcom Watcom County jail and I said oh all right well you d- did some time up there and now you're free and he goes yeah um so anyway I ended up getting in this big conversation with a bunch of the guys there about you know how uh, first of all drugs um, were decriminalized possession of drugs and but now they've been uh, criminalized again because uh, when they made it illegal to use drugs publicly um or when they made it legal that things kind of got out of hand and with all the fentanyl overdoses um there was no recourse that the police could use to arrest people and get them off the streets and so anyway there's been shifts in the seattle area and in our region um away from um you know the decriminalization of possession of drugs and so i was just saying you know what what do you guys think about that and they were saying well because I said, look, it seems like you guys, you know, our bodies, they get cleansed from um, all these toxins. And, um, and I've, I noticed that in the past, a lot of people seem to benefit a lot from just forced detox, just in terms of longevity, you know, like people, our livers and kidneys and, you know, lungs and everything need a break. And they were saying, well, yeah, that's true. But the problem is, is that jail is not treatment. And so the one guy was saying, you know, like I, what I need, if, you know, what would be good is if if instead of jail, they would give us, uh, put us in some kind of a, you know, a lockdown treatment facility, that would be worthwhile. But just throwing us in jail is not doing any good. And in fact, what we've been noticing is when people get out of jail, and especially now that we can't connect with people as chaplains because we're not allowed into the jail, when people get out of jail after they've gone through their detox, that's when they're often overdosing and dying because their, um, you know, their tolerance levels are, are, are are way, way down. You know, when, when people are using and smoking blue, smoking fentanyl on a daily basis, they need more and more and more pills that they smoke. These, these blue tablets, they need more and more of them. And so then after they've detoxed and been in jail for a while, when they get out, they often will go back to their previous dose. And then that's what causes people to overdose and die. And last week, we lost one of our beloved people that way. And so, and then, so this man that I was talking to said, Yeah, it actually happened to me last week um, when I got out of jail. I smoked some of this uh, new stuff, this bad batch stuff. And um, they needed three Narcans to bring me back. And the police were shocked because they know me to be someone that has a really high tolerance normally and nothing nothing has ever caused me to you know to overdose but there i was um nearly dead and um so anyway we had that encounter with those guys and right when we were talking and i was meeting some new people up walks this woman who um i had been looking for for six months six to eight months she had been someone we had been preparing for baptism but then she relapsed and her partner you know stayed clean and um so they separated and she hit the streets and I'd been looking for her and um, hadn't been able to find her anywhere. And there she was, she showed up and I hardly recognized her cause she changed her haircut. And so anyway, um, there I was with this person and right away I just said, um, you know, like, how are you doing and what's up? So she pulled me aside and explained, you know how she just gotten out of a month in jail and she hadn't relapsed yet. And I said, well, do you want to go to treatment? and she said yes i said well do you want me to help you now and she said yes and um and so i said well okay let's let's go over to my car and then i said so um where where are you going to stay and she says well i've been calling 911 uh, connect and that's a, that's a way for people to call 911 get the police to come and and help them get into a you know a, a shelter somewhere so i said okay well do you do you want to do that for now right now and then i'll look for a place where we can get you uh, into treatment she said yes yes so we called um, 911 i called 911 for her and the police officer said you know he was going to look for a place and then he called me back and said he found a place and then um he ended up coming to where we were in the parking lot and but meanwhile we were praying together and um and so she got into her um you know her shelter that night and sadly the next day we weren't able to she didn't respond to my my communications, and so she's still at large. But she knows that, that that there's people that care for her, and she knows the name of the treatment facility. She has the phone number for, and and we just pray for her that you know nothing happens um, that would take her life between now and then. But anyway, those are two examples of being compelled, and um, I believe that God wants to help us tune into. Ways in which we are feeling like um, there's things that we must do. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I gave examples of, you know, of, of Jesus knowing what he had to do. And I just want to give a few more examples of, of Jesus and knowing what he, what he had to do. Like when the young man, Jesus, um, is, stays back in Jerusalem and uh, his parents don't know where he is and they head back after the feast. In Luke 2 to 49, um, then they come back looking for him. And when they find him, they, um, you know, they say, well, son, where have you been? We've been looking for you everywhere. And he says, why is it that you're looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be or that I, that's the term day. I, I must, you know, I had to be, I was compelled to be in my father's house or about my, the work, the things of my father literally is what it says. And so Jesus knew that he had to be about the things of his father. And, um, you know, and um, here's another example from Luke twelve twelve, just about how we would know um, what it is that we must do or say. It says, uh, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour uh, what you must say. So see, the Holy Spirit is our guide who will teach us um, what, you know, what we have to say um sometimes we ourselves uh can maybe be like Jesus where we know um you know we know what we must do with people like in Luke 19:5 Jesus is described as um you know going through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem and um he came to a place where Zacchaeus had run ahead Zacchaeus was a, a, a renowned tax collector and he'd run ahead because he was short of stature and he climbed up in a sycamore tree and and it says, um, so he came to the place and he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, so he knew his name, hurry and come down today, for I must stay at your house. So there's another example of Jesus moving in the in the spirit and knowing what he was compelled to do. And um I I really want to um you know to learn how to um you know how to be in that kind of alignment, you know, um I just uh, really want to be fruitful, I guess, for um, the Kingdom of God and I believe that the way that we do that is through um, you know, it was through really making sure that we're letting Jesus and His Word and the Holy Spirit promptings take center, center stage. So here's an example of John the Baptist doing that. John 3 verse 30, John says, He, that is Jesus, must increase but I must decrease. So there we go. Uh, Jesus' voice and his importance and his name being lifted up and glorified. Jesus must increase in my life, but I, in, in, with all of my, you know, my needs and my perspectives, must, must decrease. And um, here's another example, John 9, 4. We must work the works of him who sent me. So Jesus here includes us. When he says, we must work, that's the term day, um, the works of the one who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So there's a timeliness to what we need to do. And um, and so that's something that we must learn about. Here's um, another example, um, Acts 5.29. Peter and the apostles answer the scribes and Pharisees who were saying, you know, prohibiting them to speak in Jesus' name. And they say, we must obey God rather than men. Okay, so, um, and then in Acts 9, 6, Paul, after he is um, struck blind in his encounter with Jesus when he's on the road to uh, Damascus, when he's going to go persecute Christians, when he was his name was Saul, uh, he's told, um, uh, get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. So, um, so there you go. There are some more examples of that. So, what must you do? What must I do? What? How do we know what that is? I'm going to close with a, a final story. I, um, I've been praying for the people of Iran for a long time, and during COVID, I even um, developed a podcast that was in Farsi, where I would um, have a translator who lived in Ireland, and we would arrange every week to do a recording, and so on my, the people Seminary um, webpage, we have, you know, Farsi podcast. And I've been super moved by the, you know, by the hear, hearing about how the church in Iran is so persecuted. You know, there are people being killed and imprisoned who are followers of Jesus. And so um, recently, you know, one of my, th- uh, what, one of the things that's been on my heart since I was a child is just like the persecuted church and the work of Brother Andrew and Open Doors. And, is something that has always been something of my interest. And the People Seminary is really about bringing uh, training and uh, encouragement to uh, frontline workers. And, um, I mean, they, it, they don't all have to be frontline, but the idea is to bring resources of biblical studies and theology to people that are, um, that are out there in underserved, unreached, excluded pl- places, you know, prison chaplains, but also people that are in um, restricted countries. And so, um, anyway, I've had that on my heart. So uh, one of our board members is a member of, a, of an organization in London called PARS that trains uh, Iranian people in uh, theology in Persian, in the Persian language. And she contacted me and said, she's been trying to get Gracie and I to go to Turkey and um, the funding hasn't been there to go and to to teach some of the Iranian people. They can come to Turkey pretty easily, but she said, hey, Bob and Gracie, we've got this, there's this opportunity, there's a a ministry in Armenia that is training a bunch of Iranians, and they need a teacher really bad, and so uh, maybe you should contact them. So she put me in contact with the person, and the person wrote and said, yeah, we really need someone, and we'd love you to come. So right at that moment, I I felt so compelled that I said yes without even discussing it with anybody, with my family. And then I had to backtrack and say, I, I'm not sure that I can. In fact, I can't say yes. And um, and so I was in a holding pattern. But I had such a strong sense that I was called to go. And um, that I just uh, was, have been praying for the last number of weeks. And, um, you know, I'd just been gone already in September to Zambia, France, Zambia, and Cape Town, but, um, you know, um, anyway, over the last couple of weeks, that's been on my heart, and, and Gracie and I have been praying about it, and anyway, things got cleared up in our thinking to the point where I we decided that I'm, I'm going to go for a week to Armenia and um, train a group of 35 Iranian Christians who have had no access to, you know, to any kind of training. They've just been part members of house churches. And so anyway, I'm, I'm leaving this next Friday and I'm so excited. And um, anyway, things have all lined up where we we were lacking a translator and through a friend in Ireland. Um, now we have someone who's fluent in Farsi, who's going to go from their church to help, uh, help this group. Um, a French friend of mine who lives in Russia, right uh, above where we're going to be. Offered to pay for all of my flights, and then he himself is going to come and join the training for a few days. So everything has suddenly lined up to to be able to go, um, so that um, I can accomplish this uh, thing that's been on my heart so strong. So I think we need to try to pay attention to what we feel compelled to to do, and learn how to discern whether it's the spirit, whether it's our flesh, you know what is. Um, or whether it's a sense of guilt or obligation. You know, we want to be mobilized by the Spirit. We want to make sure that we're being sent by, you know, by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit to wherever we're, we're feeling called to go. So anyway, I'm going to close with a prayer. God, our Father, thank you that you, um, that you are doing things in the world everywhere and that you are inviting us to participate with you. And I ask that you'd help us see what you are doing and um, know where we fit in that in your mission and we ask Jesus that you would you would really inspire us and show us and we ask Holy Spirit that you would prompt us and guide us and that we would be receptive and we would know um, what is the calling that you have for each of us and that we would be obedient we pray this in Jesus name amen